0: All right, this is the second of a three-week service, a three-week um series of classes. And last week we talked about your child's biggest problem and um that is sin. And this week we're talking about your child's greatest hope, and which is Jesus. And it's, you know, when I was putting this together and it's, it's kind of, kind of, it's kind of unfolding as we're, as we're going along. And next week we're talking about how to actually come alongside your child and, um, teach them the gospel. And as I was, as I was getting ready for this week, I was thinking, you know, last week was the problem and this week is the hope. And that is so much what the gospel is. It's the bad news. And the good news. C.S. Lewis says, the gospel begins in dismay and it ends in comfort. Um, Tim Keller has a quote that, uh, that to me is a great explanation of the gospel is that we're worse than we think we are, but far more loved than we ever dared hoped is the way I remember it. This one says, far more loved than we feel. Um, Our sermon today, we're lost and in darkness, but Christ comes to bring us into the light. And to to really, uh, you know, and think about Jesus' own words, repent and believe. You need both the problem and the hope if you really want to grasp the full gospel. You need both sides. And when you go through Scripture, they're threaded together. I mean, last week we talked about the problem, but in the problem, in Genesis three, during the fall, there's hope threaded in. And today we're going to be talking about the hope, but the problem is always there because the reason we have the hope is because we, the reason we need the hope is because of the problem. So last week um, we talked about our problem, and that's basically that we want to go our own way. We want to be our own boss. Uh, we want to find something other than God that's going to make us happy. Some sort of significance that will satisfy our, our hungry hearts. And like, like Adam, we are all naked, guilty, ashamed, helpless, and lost. And we are more lost than we really realize. It's kind of like we're worse than we really think we are. Um, we are more lost than we really realize. And when you start to fully understand the hope um, and the solution to our problem, it's proportionate. I mean the, the more we see the magnitude of the solution, the more that we see the magnitude of our of what has been done to give us hope, the more we realize the magnitude of our problem. Does that make sense? Okay, so um, let's look real quickly at the hope that we saw last week. And this was in Genesis three. First, God came after man. It's, this. We're not on your sheet yet. God came after man and he started with a question. When Adam was naked, hiding, covered with fig leaves, God came after Adam and he asked him a question. Does anybody remember what that question was? Where are you? Where are you? And where are you is both a call of repentance You know, saying "Where are you?" and letting Adam realize the magnitude of his of his plight, but it's also the first call of grace in Scripture. "Where are you?" Is God coming after us? Um, God is a God who goes after what is lost. He goes after Adam, and he comes after each one of us, and he comes after our children. God is a God who pursues us. Second, he was as he was about to send them out of the garden. God foretold that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That somehow, and this is a kind of a whisper of a problem, I mean a whisper of a promise, that what has gone wrong will be made right. There will be some kind of deliverer who will come and crush the head of evil. And then lastly, God covers Adam and Eve not with fig leaves but does anybody remember what he covered them with animal skins which really points forward to the whole sacrificial system an animal has to be killed to cover us and that points forward to the sacrificial system that we saw with Moses but more importantly points forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross Um, so we're going to go through Very high level, kind of following these three threads of hope in scripture. Um, The first, God pursues us. It is always God who initiates. Um, Think about it. It is God who goes after Noah. It is God who goes after Abraham. One of my favorite passages is God going after Hagar. Do you remember Hagar? The slave of Sarah, Adam's wife, who gets pregnant, and Sarah kicks her out, and she goes out in the desert and God comes after her, this slave girl. And she says, You are a God who sees. So God comes after Hagar, God comes after Jacob, God comes after um everybody David, God, you know, David's out tending the sheep, and God comes has a brother go out and get him. So it's God who initiates. Um, I love this passage, and it's the first one on your handout on page one. This is from Exodus 3. And it's when Moses is on the mountain, and God has this burning bush to draw Moses to him. And so Moses gets there. And this is what God says to Moses. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And I love that verse for a number of reasons. One, it tells us that God is a God who sees. Just like Hagar said. And he sees our afflictions. He sees the people in bondage in Egypt. He hears their cries. He knows their sufferings. And then he comes down to deliver them. And he's going to raise up Moses to be the, the man on the ground, the deliverer. But it's God who's working through Moses. It's God who leads the people with a pillar of light and a pillar of cloud. So it's, this is a very specific word to Moses and the people in bondage in Egypt. But golly, it's a universal word. Because God sees each one of us. And He knows our afflictions. And what are our afflictions? What are you afflicted with? Yeah, selfishness. Pride. My need for approval. My need for comfort. All these things, we're basically, we're afflicted because like Adam, we are sinners. It's in our DNA. And we're all afflicted. And it manifests itself in a thousand different ways in each person's life. But God sees that. He hears our cries. He knows how we're suffering because of our afflictions. The Exodus passage says, I see their afflictions. Well, uh, this is the ESV. My translation says, I see their afflictions because of their taskmasters and I thought self is a very difficult taskmaster, you know that C.S. Lewis, I don't know if I said this last week or not, but I might have. C.S. Lewis says that hell is the unsmiling concentration on self. Self is never satisfied. Self always needs more applause, or more likes on your phone, or more money, or more power, or more something. Self is never satisfied. And God sees our afflictions because of our taskmaster, which is probably self, as Rita said, selfishness. So this is a universal word, and I would challenge you, this is a great exercise, particularly during Lent, is to really stop and think of how God has pursued you individually. What is the story of God's faithfulness in your life? Looking all the way back to when you were young, how has God pursued you? What are the people he's put in your path? Why? How did you end up here today? God pursues each one of us. And it's because we're lost, it's because we're afflicted by sin, that he comes down in the person of Christ Jesus to deliver us. So it's a very specific word to the people of Israel um, in Exodus 3, but a universal word to all of us. That God sees us, he hears us, he knows us, and he comes down to deliver us. And and it was, it, it is God's ultimate coming down to deliver us is in the person of Jesus Christ and this is kind of paraphrasing a verse and I don't think I put it in your handout but it's one of my favorite verses out of Philippians that it says that, that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God, equal with God. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant and was born in our likeness and he did that to deliver us. And, you know, so when the time had fully come, the whole Old Testament is a time of preparation for this moment when Christ Jesus would come. So when the time had fully come, God came himself in the person of Jesus. Jesus was born to a Jewish mother. He had no natural father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born a Jew under the law in the promised land, which was under Roman occupation during the reign of Caesar Augustus. His ministry lasted three years. And he made the very radical claim that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, and even in the more radical claim that he was God in the flesh. And I want to just give you a little bit of context, and I should be able to pick up on your handout, um, as to better understand his claim You take this whisper of a promise back from Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And I like things neatly spelled out, uh, you know, outlined, and where it's all put together, tied with a bow, and I can go and say, okay, here is what the Bible says about the Christ. Here's what the Bible says about the Messiah. It's not, the Bible's not written that way. It's almost like God. Took a a picture of who the Messiah was going to be, cut it up into a jigsaw puzzle, and kind of put a piece here in Genesis, a piece here in Exodus, a piece in the Psalms, a piece in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and you kind of have to go through the whole of Scripture to kind of start getting a concept of what this, of what this, what the people were expecting, what the the Jews, the people of Israel, were expecting in terms of this deliverer. Um, Deuteronomy, there's a promise because, you know, Moses is this seminal figure who leads the people of Israel out of bondage, um, into the promised land. And as he's dying in Deuteronomy, he says this, um, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers to him. You shall listen. So Moses is saying, you know, there's God's going to raise up another prophet like me. Well, what did Moses do? He delivered his people from bondage. And so that is kind of a puzzle piece as to who this deliverer is going to be. Second um, Samuel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah all talked to King David, who was the great king of Israel. And it was under David that they really conquered the land and they established a real nation that was powerful and respected. King David, God told David, one of your descendants is going to have a throne and it's going to last forever. And then Jeremiah picks up on that same throne, I mean that same theme, and says, I'm going to raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal <laughs> wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. And Isaiah kind of says the same thing. So you kind of have these puzzle pieces that are starting to fit together. They'll come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. David's father. Um, so same thing. Um, I will raise up... Um, no, I'm sorry. I'm on the wrong place. Um, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So you kind of have this promise that a better Moses is coming, or a deliverer like Moses. Another king is coming um, who will be like David, but better than David, because David was flawed. And this, the the, the puzzle pieces we're getting is a, of a, a more perfect David that's coming, and this eternal throne. David died; his throne was not eternal um, in terms of his uh, his lifetime. Um, Daniel says this, um, he expresses the hope and expectation again of a kingdom that will not be destroyed. And he has this night vision and he sees with the cloud of heaven, they're coming like one, like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory. And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees something similar to what Isaiah and Ezekiel are seeing, but a little different. He has a few, he has a few different details. Um, but certainly of a king that is coming whose reign will be forever. And it will be a good reign. Isaiah also tells us in a couple of places, and this is also in other places in scripture, that someday the curse is going to be removed. And he says that the wolf will lie down with the lamb. You know, the prey and the predator lying down together. A little child will play over the the hole of an adder, a snake, a poisonous snake. And then he has a beautiful passage in Isaiah 25 when he talks about God swallowing up death forever. And it's, again, one of my favorite passages. Um, he says, And the Lord God he says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And that promise is repeated in Revelation that god will destroy death it will be no more and all our tears will be wiped away so everything and this is uh, there any tolkien fans in the room that everything sad will come untrue that will all be made right um and then ezekiel and this is again one of my favorite passages i have Lots of favorite children, lots of favorite grandchildren, lots of favorite verses. Um, But I love this from Ezekiel. Um, And I'm just taking a small part out of it. But behold, this is God, for thus says the Lord God. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And you get that same sense of God's heart that he revealed to Moses that I will come down to deliver them in this view of God as our shepherd who comes himself to seek out what has been lost. Um, And I've just kind of scratched the surface um, I think I took a three hour <laughs> talk that I wanted to give and, and, and reducing it down. Um, but so this is really skimming the surface. but what the point I want to make is there's a real hopeful anticipation in the Old Testament that behold, the days are coming when this deliverer, this king, this righteous branch, this shepherd, this son of man will come. And this hope crystallizes into what came to be the Messiah or the Christ. And that's our angli- anglicized words. But this hope for this deliverer, this king, kind of crystallized in the thinking of the Jews. Um, and that came to be known as the hope for the Messiah, the hope for the Christ. Um, okay, that one sure.
1: Okay, so this is a class about faith and family. If you haven't already had a child ask you this, hope that they will at some point in time uh, in their journey ask you this. Maybe in junior high or high school, maybe even as adults, they might ask you this. Well, you know, that's really good. The Old Testament's all of the angry God and the judging God, and the New Testament is all about grace and Jesus. And I just don't have anything to do with that Old Testament. You ever heard that before? Or thought that before? Well, your children are likely going to hear it as well. And what you just heard her say was, no. No, the promise of of Jesus was all through the Old Testament. There's grace in the Old Testament, a lot of grace. As a matter of fact, that's where it begins. So you don't have to remember anything else except for to be able to say, no, the hope for Jesus is all through the Old Testament. Let me go think on that for a little while.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, even think about the sacrificial system. That they would bring a lamb and the the lamb would be sacrificed in their place. And that was God's grace. It was not something that they had done. Um, So you've got this hope for what was called the Messiah or the Christ. And when Jesus came, he made that claim that he was the Christ and the bolder claim that he was not only the Christ, but he was God. Um, and just a couple of quick examples of them. Um, probably the, the one that's probably the most familiar. This is Midway in Jesus's ministry. And he's walking at Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And they're talking and they're walking. If you think about the promised land is under the domination of the Romans. And you think about all the Roman gods you learned in mythology. And, the you know, the the Romans came after the Greeks, so you've also got all the Greek gods. And they're walking past this kind of rock face that has all these altars to Roman gods and Greek gods. And Jesus uses that as a backdrop to say, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, you know, people are really, uh, we're we're trying to figure it out. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're um, one of the prophets. And Jesus turns the question around and says, But okay, you've been with me. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You're the Christ. You're the one we have been hoping for. And... Um, Jesus says, yes, that's who I am. And you see in, I love this, this is kind of a throwaway thing that we, we roll right past. When Jesus is teaching, he teaches with authority. And if you think of the root word of authority, it's author. He teaches as the author. All the Old Testament prophets would say, thus says the Lord. And Jesus says, truly, 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 I say to you, he teaches us the authority. He also has authority to forgive sins. If you remember the story of the paralytic who couldn't get into the house because it was so full and his friends lowered him down through the roof, Jesus looked at him and said, My son, your sins are forgiven. And that created a stir. Why did that create a stir with the Pharisees? Only God can forgive sins. So if Jesus is looking at this paralyzed man saying, my son, your sins are forgiven. They realize Jesus is making a claim here that he is God. And um, then he goes on and says, my son, rise up and walk. And the man is healed. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And you think about that verse from, Isaiah, from Ezekiel. That I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. You think of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. And the claim that Jesus is making when he says, I am the good shepherd. um, Who lays down his life for his sheep. And he says that not once, but three times um, in John 10. And then when Jesus is at his trial... And this is the trial before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish authorities. And they're asking him questions. And he's remaining silent and making no answer. And then you get the high priest who ask him, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, he finally gives a direct answer to the public. I am. And then listen to these words with the words that we just read from Daniel. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is tapping in to that messianic expectation or messianic puzzle piece that um, Daniel had. Um, and the high priest, you can tell by his response... That he understands exactly what Jesus just said. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And you can, when you read through the scriptures, it's very clear who Jesus claimed to be. And you see people who heard him believed him and followed him. And then you see people who heard exactly what he was saying and charged him with blasphemy and had him killed. But it was very clear what Jesus, that Jesus was assuming the title of Christ, the title of Son of Man, the title of Son of God, Son of David, and also the Great I Am. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And, a, and people wanted to pick up stones and, stole him, and stone him. Jesus is very purposely tapping into the hope and anticipation that has been threaded throughout the Old Testament from Genesis forward. And Jesus comes to lead us from the bondage of sin into freedom. He comes to be our ransom, our redeemer, to atone for our sins, to cover us, um, just as God did in the garden. Um, He is killed. Does anybody remember the feast? When he is killed, there's a big feast in Jerusalem. What feast is it? Yeah, it's Passover. And that is not by happenstance. This is all very carefully planned. Um, he is killed on Passover. His death and resurrection are laid right on top of the Passover um, celebration and remembrance. And, you know, if you think back to Passover, every man take a lamb without blemish. And then you for, keep it for four or five days. And then the whole assembly of Israel is to kill their lambs at twilight. And they were to take the blood and put it on their doorpost, Um, and in other words, cover their doorway with the blood of the lamb. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. And the think of the deliberateness of that. Um, You, we are throughout Scripture. We are covered. We are our sin is atoned. For by blood, um, and Jesus takes that, and you can hear—we just said it in, our, in the communion service at nine o'clock. Um, when they, when this, Jesus celebrates the Passover in what we now call the Last Supper, and Jesus is—it's the middle of this ritual meal, and he takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it to his disciples and says, take, eat. This is my body. And then he takes the cup. And there's several cups in a Passover meal. And he takes the cup, gives thanks. And he says, drink it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So he is... Taking, he he's walking his disciples through, kind of. Here's the touchstone. Here's what Passover was, and here's why it was, and it points forward to what I'm about to do on the cross. Um, and I think to really best understand this, you kind of have to go back to a, to what Isaiah said, um, in chapter fifty-three, which again is kind of another puzzle piece that God put so we could. Once Jesus is on the cross, we need all these puzzle pieces to come together so we have a context. We can understand what's being accomplished on the cross. So you've got Isaiah's on the second page um, of your handout. I want you to take a second to quietly read it. And as you read it, pay attention to the pronouns. If you have a pen, even get, get your pen out and circle the pronouns as you read it. And if anybody wants a pen, I've got some. Oh, gosh. Read fast. Mm I didn't realize how late it's getting, so I'm going to stop that. Don, can I get you to read that passage from Isaiah 53? Please.
1: (laughs) Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all.
0: When you really read that, you see this great exchange. That it's our wounds, but it's his, it, it's our iniquities, but it's his wounds. He is wounded for us. <laughs> Um, St. Paul puts it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We were sinful, but in Christ we become righteous. Do I have time to show the clip? If you need to leave, you can leave. This is a clip from A Tale of Two Cities. While he's getting it turned on, I'll tell you. Kind of the backdrop. This is *Taylor Two Cities, French Revolution, two men, Sidney Carton, Charles Darnay. They both love the same woman. She chooses Charles Darnay. Charles Darnay runs afoul of the French government. He is in prison. And Sidney Carton has bribed his way into Charles Darnay's prison cell. Sydney Carton's in the hat. That's Charles Darnay. I
2: know. Of all the people on this earth, I'm the last one you expected to see. I'm afraid of God, sir, but you are not a prisoner. No, I come here only on a request from your wife. But there's no time now to tell you why I bring it or what it means. Take off your coat. No questions. Can't you tell me at least what? No. If you have escape in mind, I can tell you that it's hopeless. You will only die with it. I do not ask you to escape. I made no such request. Here. Change this waistcoat of yours for mine. Believe me, it's not going to work. The ribbon can't be done. Take my coat. Hurry! Don't you know, every attempt to escape from this prison has failed. I implore you, do not add your death to the bitterness of mine. Do I ask you to walk out that door? If I should ask that, then refuse. Now, sit down. I have something for you to write. Sit down. Is your hand steady enough? i was just writing a last note to Lucy.
0: Lucy's oh. there, his wife. Now
2: you will write what I dictate, exactly as I speak. To whom? To no one. Write. <laughs> well, that's what he said. I may need you and Lebek shortly. Why? The visitor looks quite ill. That I do so is no subject for regret
0: or grief. He's not poisoning him, he's just making him pass out.
2: Look at me. Now do you think your hazard's so great? Not if you keep your part of the bargain. Take me to the coach. You. I, him. We are the same. I have merely exchanged my life. You must leave by the same gate we enter. Right. He's unconscious. Of course. You told me he might be weak. Didn't you notice? I was weak and faint when I arrived here. And I'm fainter now that you bring me out. In fact, I'm overcome. Now hurry!
0: Dogs!
2: You swear not to betray me. I've come this far. I will not stop now.
0: He is the fool. He know better I up him I love that I love that t- the whole story, but I love this scene when Sidney Carton, because he loves the woman who loves Charles Darnay who's the prisoner, goes into the prison cell, says, "Take my coat, change his clothes." Sydney Carton stays in the prison cell dressed as Charles Darnay goes to the guillotine in his place the next morning. Charles Darnay dressed as Sidney Carton goes out in Sidney Carton's clothes with Sidney Carton's identification papers in his pocket and goes out to freedom back to his wife and children in England. And I love that because that's a picture of the gospel. That's exactly what Christ has done for us. We are in bondage because of our sins. And the hymn we sang today, that um, the dungeon was all of a sudden flamed with light, in comes Christ Jesus, says, take off those filthy rags that you're wearing and put on my white robe of righteousness. And you go forth with my identity back into the world in freedom. And I am going to the cross in your stead. That is the gospel. And that is the good news. Um, and it's, this, the movie, is a pale picture of what Christ has done for us. Um, for our sake, he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Um, I'm going to close with this verse from First Peter. In your hearts have reverence for Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. And that's what we'll talk about next week is how do we explain the hope that we have to our children with gentleness and respect. Thank you. Sorry it went so long.